Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shabbat Shalom. This past week, I had the honor of going to the White House uh, to represent our community in an evening celebrating Jewish Heritage Month. It was a thrill to hobnob with the who's who of American Jewry, to listen to the U.S. Marine Band play Hava Nagila, to hear Ben Platt and Michaela Diamond sing, and most of all, to be in the East Room with the President, the First Lady, the Vice President, and the first Jewish second gentleman. The highlight of the evening were the remarks by the president, which were interesting beyond the fact that they were prefaced by an update on the debt ceiling crisis. Um, They were noteworthy for two reasons. First, and we're going to return to this point, the vast majority of his speech was focused not so much on the contributions of American Jews to America, but rather outlining the administration's response to anti-Semitism. The speech was a policy preview of an initiative being spearheaded by the second gentleman and Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, the U.S. Special Envoy for monitoring and combating anti-Semitism. But the second noteworthy aspect of the president's speech were not his policy recommendations, but his personal reflections Remarks which, though I can't say for sure, I felt came a bit more from his heart than from the teleprompter in front of him. In explaining his motivation behind his stance against anti-Semitism, the president reminisced about his family dinner table growing up and how his father would share his outrage that America didn't bomb the railroad tracks to the concentration camps and how America had turned away the St. Louis ship and its refugees on board. The president then explained how he's taken each of his grandchildren at the age of 14 to see Dachau, to see the concentration camp, of course, but even more so to see the beautiful homes outside of Dachau's gates, homes in which life continued uninterrupted even as the most horrific crimes against humanity were perpetuated, perpetrated within the camp just yards away, to bear witness not just to the evils of the Holocaust, but to the perils of indifference. It was the inactions of the past, the president explained, that was the impetus for the present actions of his administration. And while the focus of the president's speech was largely on the administration's response to anti-Semitism, the point he was making was actually a larger one. He spoke of how in 2017, when having just lost his son and having stepped down from public life, he witnessed the marching mobs in Charlottesville carrying their torches and their hate-filled bile, 
and how the response from the highest office of the land was that there were, quote, fine people on both sides. And it was at that moment that he decided to run for re-election. I was reminded of the Talmudic principle, Shtika Kehodaya Dumya, that silence is akin to assent, a deafening silence, a moral equivocation that impelled the president, present president to action. The president's speech was not what I expected on a night given over to Jewish heritage, but as a meditation on the prompts for moral behavior, that it's by way of the failures, fumblings, and inactions of the past by which our present course of action is set into motion, it was as inspiring and Jewish a message as I could have hoped for. Because what I knew and know, and the president and his speechwriter presumably did not know, is that the message he delivered this week is exactly the message of this week's Torah reading. This week, we kick off the fourth book of the Hebrew Bible. In English, as we've heard, the book is referred to as Numbers because it begins with the census of the Israelites. Given its contents, its Hebrew name is a better fit, Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. The wilderness experience of the Israelites is more than a matter of geography. There's a spiritual topography at play. From the orderly beginnings of the book, the Israelites wander into a spiritual chaos of sorts. There's a narrative arc of the Torah. Genesis is our foundational origin stories. Exodus, the story of Israel's redemption at the sea, and then our covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Leviticus, in all its detail and minutia, is a blueprint for how to achieve holiness in this world, a spiritual map to help us find the holy and the profane, the pure in an impure world. But Bamidbar, Bamidbar is different. Bamidbar is about spiritual fatigue. It's about loss of faith, a moral compass spinning out of control, anarchy, and an unraveling of a people. There are too many missteps to count, but some of the lowlights include Israel kvetching over food, Aaron and Miriam's challenge to Moses' leadership, the sin of the spies and their unfaithful report, the rebellion of Korach and 250 of his followers, the two and a half tribes who asked Moses that they not enter the promised land, the death of Aaron and Miriam and Moses striking the rock in frustration and being disallowed from entering into the land. It was a 19th century biblical commentator, Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who explained that there's a fundamental difference between the book of Bamidbar and the prior books of the Torah. The other books represent an ideal how the world ought to behave, be and how people should behave. The book of Bamidbar represents the real, how the world actually operates and the stark and often ugly reality of human shortcoming. A physical wilderness, but really a moral wilderness, a people longing to return to Egypt, a people at odds with each other, with themselves, with their leadership, and with their God, a people who will never reach the promised land and are left to die unburied somewhere in the wilderness. Bleak as Bamidbar may be, it's nevertheless there for a reason, in that it provides us with a literary counterpoint from which we cultivate our own behavior. Up until now, when we read the Torah, our task has been to aspire 
to reach the spiritual heights of our forebears, the courage of Moses, the leadership of Miriam, and the faith of the Israelites as they crossed the sea. Bamidbar, it turns that equation on its head. It is, if you will, the Dayenu song in reverse. Last month, we sang Dayenu at our Seder tables, our cup overflowing with gratitude. It would have been enough had we enjoyed but one miracle, and then we're blessed with even more. That's not the case with Bamidbar. It would have been enough if the Israelites had only lost faith in Moses, but then they did so again, and then they lost faith in God, and then publicly, and then violently, and then, and then, and then. Bamidbar calls on us to read about Israel's failures, fumbles, and losses of faith, a study not of our heroes, but our anti-heroes, our task not to emulate, but the opposite, to learn from their mistakes and make sure we ourselves never fall prey to the missteps of the generation of the Midbar. How can we, in our own lives, cultivate the resilience that the Israelites lacked? How shall we, unlike Korach and his cohort of rebels, house dissent in a manner that doesn't tear the community apart? What are the leadership lessons we can learn by way of Israel's failures? Of the five books of the Torah, Bamidbar, like the wilderness itself, is a slog. It's the most difficult book to get through, but it's also my favorite because it's a book of failures and thus a book from which we can learn from most. To engage with an uncomfortable past, to be made to wince at the could've, would've, should'ves of yesteryear is not a pleasant experience. We have to be careful lest we get mired in our past and perseverate in it. And yet, we must also remember that the act of engaging with the past is an act of moral development and growth. As Richard Neustadt and Peter May wrote, vicarious experience acquired from the past, even the remote past, gives such guidance to the present that history becomes more than its own reward. We look back so we can learn, because, as Santayana taught, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. When I was in D.C., I had a few hours before the White House event. I went to the U.S. Holocaust Museum and Memorial, a place to which I have been to many times, with whom I would love to build a relationship with our community, and that has right now a must-see temporary ex- exhibition right now on America and the Holocaust. You may be familiar with it. The exhibition was the basis for Ken Burns' recent documentary, a sobering study and indictment of America regarding what we knew about the Holocaust and what we did, or more accurately, did not do in response. A study that begins not with the tracks to Auschwitz or the St. Louis, but May of 1933 book burnings 90 years ago this month. The exhibition is first rate, but there's nothing easy about the experience of walking through it to engage with the questions of what Americans knew, even objected to, yet failed to respond to. The museum is a profound act of moral education, a point made explicit by way of its other temporary exhibition on Burma's path to genocide and the present-day persecution of the Rohingya. We remember not just to remember or to remind ourselves of the importance of standing vigilance against the recrudescence of anti-Semitism in our time. We revisit our uncomfortable past because we face those same questions today in Burma, in China, in Ukraine, and even at our own borders. Humanitarian crises abound. 
We know what we know. We may even know what we object to. And yet, once again, we fall short of history's moral measuring stick. How will the museums of tomorrow judge our inactions of today? And while we must be ever true to the never again watchword of our people, we need not invoke the Holocaust to learn the lessons of Bamid Bar. Ours is a curious and deeply problematic cultural moment in terms of our willingness to engage with the past. We've been extended two equally unappealing options of how to respond when confronted with an uncomfortable past we would rather not confront. Either we dismiss or deny it, we brush it under the rug, deem it politicized, and call it fake. Or we make an idol of the past and we hold the present hostage to the sins of yesteryear, forgetting that today is different than yesterday. Not so, says our tradition. History is an instrument of learning that can be both used and abused. We stand face to face with that which causes us to squirm, interrogating our history for its continuities and its discontinuities, what is the same and what is different when it repeats and when it just rhymes, in order that we may grow wiser and more vigilant by way of it. We grow from the past, and we're careful never to become prisoners to it. If there is an overarching sin of the desert generation, it was a failure of memory. The Israelites either forgot the lessons of their past to the point that they were doomed to repeat them, or they were so beholden to the past that they were unable to see the horizon in front of them. Either way, it was their inability to interrogate and integrate the lessons of the past into their present that impeded the momentum forward. Far too often, far too many of us suffer from the self-same malady of memory. We get older, but we don't get wiser. The book of Bamidbar teaches us that the key to our future is found in an active and healthy relationship with our past. Painful as it may be, we must face our mistakes, our failures, and our foibles in order that we may face our future, reaching into our past so that one day together we can enter the promised land. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, <laughs>